Our message this morning is entitled, He is Risen. And just reflect back on our time together last week. In our message last Sunday, on a day that we usually refer to just on the calendar as Palm Sunday, we considered whether or not Jesus knew how much He would suffer before going to the cross and upon the cross, prior to entering into Jerusalem, the week of His crucifixion. You remember from our message, He gets upon a donkey, He rides that animal into the holy city, people cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be He that cometh in the name of the Lord, in fulfillment of numerous prophecies. And so we considered the question, when Jesus did that, did He know the suffering that He would experience? Three mock trials, one before Caiaphas the high priest and the powers that be, the council, the Sanhedrin, a mock trial before Herod and a mock trial before Pilate. Pilate was so disturbed in that mock trial because he heard people say that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God that he rushes into Jesus full of fear and he asks him, from whence are thee? Which means, where are you from? Even Pilate could tell that there was a difference about this man. He would be scourged before every group of people that he was tried by. He would be beaten. He would be dressed in a robe and a reed was placed in his hands and they would take it and they would hit him in the head with it. They would dig a crown of thorns into his brow. He would face public shame and ridicule as he carried his cross to Golgotha where he would be nailed upon it. The cross dropped into the ground with a thud, his body jolting to a halt, the stress being upon the nails in his hands and in his feet. And there, upon the cross, He would be made an offering to His Father. Our sin debt being placed upon Him, the iniquity of us all being laid upon Him. And He suffered God's wrath in a mystery that we can't even understand, that no man was even able to fully see as the sun was darkened for a period of three hours. And there, upon the cross, He cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. He gave up the ghost. The earth did shake. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. Jesus had died. The answer to that question, as we studied last week, was absolutely yes. Jesus knew everything that He would suffer upon the cross before going to Jerusalem. And yet He set His face as a flint. He was determined to go and to suffer everything that He would have to suffer for you, despising the shame of it, enduring all of that agony and torture for the joy set before Him of housing you, His beloved bride in heaven with Him forevermore, your sins having separated you from Him. And it would have been eternally, because God is a just God and He is immutable, and so we would be forever separated from Him. And yet He has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He has saved us from our sins. Jesus knew every bit of suffering that He would experience. 
And not only did he set his face as a flint, Isaiah chapter 50, but as he went, he went as a lamb dumb before the shearers, opening not his mouth, not talking back, not attempting to get out of it, not utilizing his power and authority in calling angels from heaven to execute everyone who stood against him, but he suffered it to be. He went as a lamb dumb before the shearers. He endured it, as Isaiah chapter 53 said. He went to the cross, despising the shame of it, enduring all of it for the joy that was set before him. We concluded last week with Jesus' final words in John chapter 19 and verse 30. These words are very important to us and we'll come back to them before we close today as we consider the significance of them, what these words mean to you in your daily life. They're words that are so important to us, they're our slogan here, as much as amazing grace is, it is finished is also so important that they're etched into the table before my pulpit that I stand behind this morning trying to preach the word to you. It is finished. You might wonder, what is finished? Which will be exactly how we conclude our thoughts today. When Jesus, therefore, had finished the vinegar, you know, prior to this, he said, I thirst, and the very words, I thirst, are a fulfillment of Scripture. His tongue cleaved to his, the roof of his mouth as he was pierced as he hung upon the tree, Psalm chapter 22, the 22nd Psalm, goes into great detail about the suffering of Christ, including his thirst, as do other passages. The fact that his hands and his feet were pierced, he was nailed to the tree. Knowing all of these things are fulfilled, Scripture fulfilled, he says, I thirst. There was a vessel of vinegar, and they put a sponge with, filled a, fun, a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now, previously, Jesus, and this is important for you to understand, had refused the vinegar as it had been offered to him. Why? Because it was mingled with a sedative. As he's there being nailed upon the tree, they offer him gall, and Jesus refuses it. Why does Jesus refuse it then but accept it now? Because Jesus is fulfilling Scripture now. But the first time they offered it to him, they offered it to him with a sedative. Jesus refuses the sedative. Fathom that. He refuses the pain reliever. I'm sure we've all had medical procedures done. You wake up from a medical procedure that causes you pain and you're asking for the button to push. Give me the pump. Give me the morphine. Where's the hydrocodone? I hurt. Jesus, knowing all that he would experience, refuses the sedative. And yet here he says, I thirst. And they put the vinegar to his mouth. And as they put the vinegar to his mouth, he says, it is finished. Why does he say that? Well, number one, because all the prophecies that he had to fulfill up until this time had been completed. He fulfilled all of these prophecies, and we read so many of them last week, but beginning with his incarnation, the location of his birth, 
his journeying into Egypt, his living, his rearing in Nazareth, all of the things that he would do, all of the things that he would say, his teaching to them in parables, his identity, not only as a man, but also as the incarnate word, Emmanuel, God with us, all of the details of his crucifixion given in advance, riding into the holy city, the things that people would cry out, everything that he was to fulfill, he had fulfilled. Now, might I just interject? Mathematicians have taken it upon themselves to calculate the probability of a man fulfilling just a few of these prophecies. And it is impossible statistically. But when you begin to add up everything that is undeniably written in advance about him, there is no way that he could fulfill all these prophecies except that be written of God and he be sent of God. These prophecies are written to strengthen our faith. You know, God could have done this and never told anybody about it, but that wasn't his will. We have an entire era of humanity of time on earth leading up to the cross. And then we have an entire era after that looking back to the cross and the story of mankind leading up to it and looking back to it is all about Christ. This world exists for His glory and the testimony of the eternal living Creator of the universe, His written Word whether Old Testament or New, it all points to Christ. If the Word of God points to Christ, if what God has communicated to us points to Christ, don't you think all of time the story of humanity is the story of Christ? Everything, everything is for His glory, the glory of God's Son. He created a people to be adored by Him, to worship Him, to experience Him, these people sinned and fell from their uprightness. And so the scheme before the foundation of the world was set to deliver them, also glorifying Him. Everything throughout human history, the intent of that is the glory of God, the glory of His Son Jesus. All of His acts of, among men have had Christ as the center focal point. You know, that goes contrary to so much of what we hear in American churches today because in American churches today, it's all about us. What I want, what I need, what I feel, how I can make me better, how I can fix the problems in my life in 10 easy steps. But friends, we're not the center focal point of human history, of the Word of God, of life at present, or life in glory, Christ is all in all. You'll find your greatest happiness and your greatest fulfillment in this life if you live to glorify Jesus and experience His presence. And any time we put anything above that, we set ourselves up for disappointment. It is as if we are doing as Esau and trading our birthright for sod pottage. I don't know how good that sod pottage was, but I imagine it wasn't that good. Does it sound good to you? I want sod pottage. Christ is our all in all. We'll pick back up this week in John 19, verse 30, where we left off last week.
Jesus cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Some translations word that he breathed his last breath. And to me, that is as nails on a chalkboard. You see, Jesus had previously said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, which is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which say the exact same thing. And you have either commit or commend, and they're synonyms. Jesus says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and he does what? He gives up the ghost. Saying, and he breathed his last breath, is a mistranslation of those words. When you breathe your last breath, the breath that you breathe is not your spirit. How many breaths have you breathed in your life? Every time you exhale, your spirit is not leaving you. You know, they used to believe that was happening when you sneezed, which is why people say, God bless you when you sneeze. He's trying to die. His spirit tried to escape. God bless him. He didn't simply breathe his last breath. He gave up the ghost. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And according to the book of Hebrews, as he gives up the ghost, he presents the work of redemption, his work upon the cross, to his Father through the eternal spirit. And so when Jesus died, this is a great debate within Christianity what happened to the soul of Christ? What happened to his spirit when he died? There's a well-known creed, the Apostles' Creed. It was not written by the apostles, and it's been edited many times through church history. Understood properly, it's a fine expression of Christianity. Understood properly. But in that, you have the expression that Jesus descended into hell. And so people think, well, Jesus, when he died, he went into the place of torment and, well, maybe he preached there too and maybe he rescued people and took them to glory with him. No, when every Old Testament saint died, they went to glory. Jesus didn't go rescue people from hell. Literally, through forbearance, God accepted them into his presence, understanding that Christ died Romans chapter 3. There was no reason to go there and rescue people. God had all confidence that Jesus would save them from their sins. This is God we're talking about here. He has all knowledge. Jesus went to the grave, and that's the proper understanding of the Old Testament passages about Him being or going to hell. And there are passages that translate that way, but hell there means the grave. It means the abode of the dead. His body died, but what happened to his soul, as it were, his spirit? Into thy hands I commend my spirit. The moment that Jesus' physical body died, he went to be with his Father in glory. What does he tell the dying thief? Father, what does he tell the dying thief? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. When he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, 
Jesus is in paradise because the dying thief was going to meet him there. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I was talking with a man one time that sent me about 50 emails of hate mail after listening to a radio broadcast in which I talked about the immortality of the soul. Finally, I blocked the email address when he began telling me that abortion isn't wrong because babies haven't breathed yet, and since they haven't breathed yet, they don't have a soul. What? What about a, what a hideous idea is that? You know, John the Baptist leaps for joy in his mother's womb. He wasn't breathing. He was alive. He then began sending me letters in the mail here. You run into some crazy individuals when you are in the public light. But he told me that was a mistranslation, that Jesus is really saying, Verily I say unto you today, comma, you'll be with me in paradise. No. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, that very day, the dying thief was with Jesus in paradise. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The dying thief was there. Christ goes to be there. He was in the grave as far as his body, but his soul was with God. Now, this is an interesting mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness because this is the word incarnate. This is God incarnate. And yet at the same time, he was completely human. So he is a man of body, soul, and spirit just like you are. How can that be? Well, I don't know how that can be. And neither do you know how that can be. Paul didn't know how that could be. Because when Paul wrote of the incarnation, he said, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. I don't know how that works. And I don't have to. I don't have to know it. I just need to believe it. I can't understand all of this. And neither can you. And that's the point. Because we stand there and we witness this, we see this, we read about it, and we marvel in it. That God became man. He gave his life upon the cross as a man. And he is at the right hand of the Father even today. After Jesus gives up the ghost... His soul, his spirit, as it were, goes to be with the Father. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he would be there, his presence, his essence, his consciousness, whatever word you want to use, is there until his body is resurrected. He enters into his body. He says, I lay my life down, I take it up again. In John chapter 10, no man takes it from me. If I lay it down, I take it up again. After this, they come and they break the legs of the prisoners on each side of him, the condemned criminals. Then came the soldiers. The next day was the Sabbath. You see that it's not proper for bodies to be on the cross on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was a high day because Pilate thought that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Pilate sins for their legs to be broken. Why would that be necessary? Why break their legs? You see, on the cross, it's a slow, agonizing, cramping, painful death of suffocation. They might bleed out. Sure, 
especially if you've been scourged first. But most of the time, people would hang there until they slowly suffocate to death. Your body pulls down the weight of your body that is, pulls you down, and it begins to prevents you from breathing, and so you pull yourself back up, and as you pull yourself back up, you cramp, and as you cramp, you begin to slide back down, and you begin to suffocate. And so over and over, this vicious cycle of cramping to breathe versus slouching and suffocating takes place. To expedite things, they break the legs of those who hang. That way they cannot push themselves back up. I'm sure some of you here have broken your leg, and you know that you didn't just immediately die from a broken leg. Why would you die from a broken leg? Because you couldn't push yourself back up to breathe. They come to break the legs of those that were crucified. They come to Jesus. They saw that he was dead already, and they break not his legs which is a fulfillment of prophecy. Not one bone of him would be broken. He's still fulfilling prophecy. One of the soldiers with him had a spear, and he pierces the side of Jesus. He hits him in the soft part below the ribs. Forthwith came there out blood and water. Now, verse 35 is a note of the narrator. This is the Apostle John telling you why this is here. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith is true, that ye might believe. He references this record that he gives in his first epistle, 1 John, in the fifth chapter, as he talks about the water and the blood bearing witness. What would that testify of? Well, it would testify of his humanity. Because 1 John is written to combat Gnosticism, which taught that Jesus had no physical body. But this blood and water flowing from his side attests to the fact that he was a flesh and bone and blood man as we are, while at the same time being completely deity and divine. He was 100% God, 100% man, the God-man. And this bears record of his humanity. These things were done that the Scripture might be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken, but also from Zechariah. And another Scripture which says, They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. More than 300 prophecies about parts of his life exist in the Old Testament. And truth be told, when you begin to look at all the types and the shadows, the work of the priests, the purity of the offerings, the offering to the death of the animals, the application of the blood of the animals, the ark, the tabernacle, the temple, all of that is pointing to Christ. You have 300 and something literal prophecies of Him. But when you tabulate in all the types and the shadows and the foreshadowings, you find Christ all through the Old Testament. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, secretly, he was a secret disciple, he besought or begged Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and he took the body of Jesus. 
And we find another man here that comes to the body of Christ. There came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, another more than likely secret disciple. Nicodemus comes to him by night in John chapter 3, and he says, We know that you've come from God. No man can do the things that you do except God be with him. Well, there were people, his peers, that came to Jesus in John chapter 10 and said, If you're really the Christ, tell us plainly. How long do you make us doubt? And Jesus says, I told you plainly. But the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. You believe not because you're not of my sheep. But Nicodemus knew that Jesus was come from God. Not just a teacher influenced by God, but one who has come from God. Nicodemus was a secret believer, just as Joseph of Arimathea was a secret believer. These two men come to the body, and they bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Now, Jesus would be anointed for his burial more than once. You remember there was a woman that came and broke an alabaster box of ointment on him and anoints him with that, and Judas is angry about it. Well, this box could have been sold, and the money could have been given from the, or to the poor. All the while, he said all of it because he was a thief, and he carried the purse, and he wanted to steal from the purse. He was a liar and a thief, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. This could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus says, this woman has anointed me for my burial. But these two men come and they take the body of Jesus and they anoint him for his burial. On the first day of the week, the women would come to anoint Jesus for his burial. There was such a confusion at this time. They don't know that these men have done that, apparently. And these men don't know that the woman had already anointed him with the alabaster box of ointment, apparently. It was common for a body to be anointed. Why didn't these women do this? Because they ran out of time between his crucifixion and the holy day. And you don't anoint a body on the Sabbath. So the first thing, when the Sabbath is over, these women are coming running to the tomb to anoint him. These men take the body of Jesus, wound it in linen clothes with spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. Now we know through Luke 24 that this tomb was owned by Joseph, who was a wealthy man. Joseph places him in his new tomb. There's never been a body here. You know that in the first century, you'd have a a cave hewn out of a rock, and that tomb would be used as a family burial place by that person, his wife, his children, grandchildren. You might have multiple generations of people buried in the same cave, the same tomb. Never had there been anyone in this tomb. And they lay Jesus in the tomb. I have to think about the fact that 
And I think you'd be interested to know that in 1990, they found the remains of a certain high priest in Jerusalem, in a subdivision just south of a subdivision in Jerusalem. The remains belonged to one Joseph bin Caiaphas, or Caiaphas, son of Joseph. Caiaphas, son of Joseph. What's the significance of that man? They found all sorts of other people related to him buried. Caiaphas was the high priest of Judaism at the time when Jesus was put to death. The man who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus, the man that paraded him in front of him, the man who brought one false witness after another before him, the man who said, do you answer nothing to all of these accusations? And Jesus simply tells him, the hour is coming when the Son of Man shall come again and you will see him in the clouds. As he comes with the glory of his father and Caiaphas rips his clothing and he says, this man is worthy of death. What more need we of witnesses? He has blasphemed. And Caiaphas drags him before Pilate and demands that he be executed. Demands that Barabbas be released, the murderer Barabbas. On that day, demands that Jesus would be crucified. Demand that he be put to death. Caiaphas' motivation partially in that had been revealed in an unlikely prophecy that he had given right after the death of Lazarus as Jesus raises Lazarus again. They began to conspire against Jesus to have him put to death. And Caiaphas says, is it not expedient that one man should die for the entire nation? And he didn't mean that about Jesus being crucified to die for the sins of God's people. He meant, if we execute Jesus who claims to be king of the Jews, then the Romans will be appeased. We keep our land. I keep my position. The status quo is maintained all by putting this Jesus of Nazareth to death. This man, this wicked man, his bones are in a tomb in Jerusalem. Do you know whose bones are not in a tomb in Jerusalem? The real high priest of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus placed the body in a tomb. You have Sabbath between the crucifixion and the resurrection where they don't do anything, they don't travel, they don't work. We know nothing about what the disciples did between when Jesus was placed in the tomb and the time that they come to find the tomb empty. What we do know is that they all retreated, his friends fled from him, they denied him. The only one that we have record of being at the crucifixion is John. And I love how John sets the record straight about where he was and what he did so many times in his gospel. Because he doesn't have the emphasis in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So many times it's Peter, Peter, Peter. But John is like, 
No, I was there. Because Jesus looks at me and he says, Son, behold thy mother. Because I'm standing by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he looks at Mary and he says, Woman, behold your son. And what Jesus is saying to John and to Mary is that you will take her as if she's your own mother and care for her for the rest of your life, John. And John includes that in his gospel. In fact, John gets a little bit of a humble brag here in chapter 20. These women come to the tomb. They find it empty. They run back to tell Peter. And in the other gospel accounts, you have Peter running to the tomb. But notice what John says. She runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. When you read in John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John is talking about himself. I love this humble brag. They come running there. So ran they together and the other disciple did outrun Peter. John's like, I beat Peter to the tomb. And it was empty. That disciple whom Jesus loved outran Peter. I noticed that for the first time that I remember this week, and it was comical. John's like, I outran Peter. It's often believed that this was the final gospel account to be written. And so John gives us information that we don't read in what's called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So much of theirs parallel and mirror. We have all kinds of information in John that we didn't have in those gospels. You say, does that mean they contradict? No, they complement. They complement one another. You put them all together and you get the fullest of the picture that you can understand. John and Peter come running to the tomb. In the other gospels, Peter's only mentioned. But John's like, oh no, I was there and I beat him there. They stoop down, they look in, they see the linen clothes lying and he was not there. These men you think about this, were heartbroken. They were discouraged. They were confused. They were fearful. They were full of despair. Three and a half years they follow this man, Jesus. He goes to them. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He taps them as his pupils. And they begin to round up their friends and their brethren. We have found him, the Christ. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Three and a half years they follow him as they hear him preach. They hear him teach. They see him publicly give parables and scold the powers that be. They see him cast out devils, heal the sick. They see him give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. Straightens withered limbs, raises people from the dead. And yet, hours before this, just days they saw him arrested. Oh, they tried to fight back. Peter pulls a sword and he knocks the ear off Malchus, Caiaphas' servant. And Jesus puts it back on his head. 
They see him tried, beaten, scourged. He carries his cross through the host of screaming, hysterical people. They see him crucified. Their world, in their mind, had just been shattered. But things are not as they appear. Then came the first day of the week. As these women come, not the men. So many times we want to place some of these men up on a pedestal and they are but men. It wasn't even the men that came to the tomb of Jesus. It was the women to go anoint the body. They loved him. They were going to minister to him one last time. These same women that undoubtedly had cooked for them, labored in the kitchen for them. And we find references of that. Women that had washed his feet with their tears and dried them with the hair of their head. Women that had anointed him with ointment. They come and the tomb is empty. What confusion. You read various accounts of what they said to the people. Where is he? They rush back to Peter and James and John and the other apostles and begin to tell them he's not there. We, we don't know where he is. But we saw angels that told us that he was risen. As you just read, Peter and John run to the tomb and they look in and there's great confusion. Angels tell them that he is risen. Why seek you the risen among the dead? You know, as the angel arrives to roll away the stone, those that were there placed as guards because the authorities, the powers that be, knew that this was a big deal. They placed soldiers there, trained soldiers, to repel anyone who would steal the body. These men fall as if they were dead when the angels come to the tomb of Jesus. There's confusion. Peter runs back. What does this mean? And then Jesus begins to reveal himself to the disciples. Now, if you read Matthew's account, it, it seems so very brief, doesn't it? They come to the tomb, the tomb is empty, they converse with the angels. Jesus appears to them in Galilee. He upbraids them for their lack of faith. He commissions His eleven to go to preach, to baptize, to preach. And then He ascends to glory. If you only had that account, you didn't have the full scope of the other gospel accounts in the book of Acts, you might think that Jesus shows Himself to them and then He is gone. But according to Acts chapter 1, Jesus spent 40 days revealing himself to his disciples. Beginning here at the empty tomb, and then to the disciples at the home where they were, he reveals himself to two men on the road to Emmaus. He walks the entire journey with them. But he hid himself from their eyes where they could not see that he was the Christ in Luke 24. He says, what's wrong? They say, are you a stranger to these parts? 
Do you not know of Jesus that was crucified? We trusted that it should have been he who had redeemed us from our iniquities. And yet he is dead. And Jesus begins, oh fools and slow of heart. He begins at Moses and he went through all of the Old Testament proclaiming how Jesus, how the Christ must needs suffer and die and be risen again. Throughout the entire journey, he preached his own gospel to them. And as they arrive and he eats, he reveals himself to them and he vanishes out of their sight. Now, I was observing this this past week. We think of life in terms of going from one place to another. Matter cannot be created nor destroyed. You're not here today because you blinked and you teleported and ended up at church. You drove here. You walked to your car. You sat in your seat. You drove to this building. You walked inside. You sat down on a pew. And so here you are. But after the resurrection, Jesus appears in places. He appears to these two on the road to Emmaus. In just a moment, we'll consider how he appeared to Mary. Peter and John had been there. They had run back. Mary remains at the tomb and Jesus appears to her. I don't think he was necessarily hiding, waiting for everyone to leave to reveal himself to Mary. He comes and he goes as he pleases, simply materializing. Because this is God. This is God. You say, maybe he flies. Maybe he materializes. We don't know. But what we do know is that he appears at one point in the midst of them in a room that is locked. He's simply there. You Think about that next time somebody tells you Jesus is standing at the door of your heart asking to come in. He doesn't need to knock. He just appears. I love the meme that someone made, and it's got a bunch of law enforcement officers with a barricade about to hit the door. And then on the inside of it, it shows the door latched with a Cheeto. And the caption has to do with Jesus knocking on your heart. He doesn't have to knock. He kicks the door down. He's Jesus. That text, behold, I stand at the door, at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open is not written to the dead alien sinner, but the church at Laodicea that was so lukewarm because they thought they were rich and had need of nothing that Jesus wasn't even in their midst. I stand at the door and knock is not written to the dead alien sinner talking about their heart. It's written to a lukewarm church. And if we ever become lukewarm in our worship here, stagnant, stale, Jesus stands at the door knocking if any man or any woman open that door, he'll fellowship, he'll sup with you and you with him. That's an opportunity for fellowship to a congregation that no longer had Christ in their midst. Now, Jesus just appears in the midst of a locked room full of disciples. One of those occurrences, they were hysterical. All of a sudden he's not there and he's there and they panic. What a 40-day time period this must have been. Again, according to Acts chapter 1, this was some 40 days. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul is presenting the resurrection to a church that denied the resurrection of the body, 
not Jesus' resurrection necessarily, but our resurrection at the end of time. He tells them that they would be saved from this heresy if they would remember the gospel that was preached unto them, the gospel of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen of Cephas, that's Peter. Then of the twelve, listen to this next part. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are fallen asleep, which means they've already died. Last of that, or after that, he was seen of James and of all the apostles. That's presumably at the Great Commission, as he gathers with the eleven, and as he finishes ordering them to the work that they are to do, he ascends to glory. And Acts 1 has them standing there looking into the sky. And the angels say, why you stand looking, why you stand looking up into heaven? Why stand gazing ye? Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus that has ascended shall likewise descend. You've been given work to do. Go get busy. Last of all, he was seen of me, Paul says. Paul saw the risen Christ as of one born out of due time. Now, verse 6 is of particular interest to me because we don't actually have a cut-and-dry, clear example of this in the resurrection accounts at the conclusions of the four Gospels or the beginning of the book of Acts. John Gill speculates in his commentary that the 500 brethren that saw him at once saw him in Galilee. So Jesus is raised again. They come to the tomb. The tomb is empty. You have Mary who sees him. Here in Acts chapter 20, he appears to the other disciples and he tells them, go and wait for me in Galilee. Gill points out that more than likely what happened is you have these 11 apostles go to Galilee to wait and they tell every disciple of Jesus they come across. In Acts chapter 1, you have 120 disciples gathered together. You might think that's all the disciples there were, but there were a more than 500 brethren which saw him at once after his resurrection before his ascension. And that's a masculine term, brethren. That means that there were probably women and children. If there was a woman for every man, that's a thousand. If they have children with them, you may have 1,500 people. If that word brethren is to be taken as masculine only... Hundreds and hundreds of people saw the risen Christ. It is an uncontested historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day. Women, Peter and John, the two on the road to Emmaus, Mary here at the tomb as they leave, and she begins grabbing him. Touch me not, I'm not yet ascended to my father. There's nothing magical or mystical about that language. 
There have been all kinds of ideas invented about touch me not, I've not yet ascended to his father, that he ascended and then descended and then revealed himself to the apostles. No. The simply a figure of speech saying, I'm still here. If you're with someone and they're grabbing you and you want them to go do something, you say, I'm here, I'm fine, go. I'm not ascended to my father yet. You've got time to see me. Go tell the others. That's what that language means. And then 500 all at once. And lastly, the apostles before he ascends to glory. Uncontested historical fact. As we come to the final thought for today, what does the resurrection mean to me? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to the church? What does it mean to humanity? What is its place in human history? This was such a crucial part of their experience, obviously, that it was, number one, their greeting. I have read that in the first century, it was a common greeting among Christians to say, He is risen! And the response would be, He is risen indeed! And so if someone walks up to you today and they say, He is risen, your reply is to be, He is risen indeed! It became their greeting. The fact of the resurrection made it into every public sermon preached by the apostles in the book of Acts. Every message. It was something that they did not publicly preach to strangers without including. Why? Because it solidifies everything that they say is fact. And three... It even redefined the day in which we worship God. What do we read in the gospel accounts? On the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20, when the apostles gather with the church, when did they gather? Upon the first day of the week. In the book of 1 Corinthians, when are they going to gather to accumulate their offering to send to other churches and other brethren and ministers? The first day of the week. When does John say that he saw the vision he saw in Revelation? On the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? The first day of the week. In early church histories, such as Justin Martyr, for instance, they meet on the first day of the week. Completely redefines the day in which God is worshipped. It is the single most important fact, the nail upon which everything else that we believe is hung because it proves that it is real. And so we come to this point, what it means. We've only got about half an hour here. First of all, the resurrection testifies of Jesus' identity. You know how many people have been executed in the history of the world? Do you know how many cult leaders have been executed in the history of the world? There are cult leaders who have died in war. There are cult leaders who died by the government executing them. Even in American history, there's a cult leader who died in a shootout. Millions of followers. And he died in a shootout, Joseph Smith. 
Jesus rose again. And His resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt with all certainty that He is exactly who He said He was. Romans chapter 1, concerning His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, that's His humanity, made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He was of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. He wasn't made the Son of God with power by the resurrection. He's eternally God's Son. But He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. You have His humanity, His divinity, His deity, attested to in Romans chapter 1. What separates Jesus from every other religious leader who has ever lived, what proves the authenticity of His claims, is the fact that He is raised again from the dead. His death proved that He was a man. His resurrection proved that He was divine. God incarnate. Number two, His resurrection testified, proves that the Word of God is true. The single greatest reason I believe the Bible is because Jesus Christ rose again. Now, the Bible is full of practical wisdom. The Bible is full of things that men could not have known at the time. That God hung the earth on nothing. How evaporation works. You find that in Job. Great giant animals that we don't see in the world anymore in Job 39 and Job chapter 40. Microbiology to go bury your waste and your bodies outside of the camp to wash yourself in moving water after you've touched a dead body, to the dietary laws of God's Word. The things that were clean are healthy, and the things that are unclean are less healthy. God's Word proves itself. But the one thing that has proven it with all certainty is the fact that Jesus endorsed it He preached it, He fulfilled it, and He rose again. I believe the Bible because Jesus is risen. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus testifies that our sin debt has been forever paid. You see, when Jesus cried out upon the cross of Calvary, it is finished Those three words, it is finished, translate from a single Greek word that means fulfilled or done or finished, but it was a word that was often used to have reference to a debt, a price paid in full. It is finished means paid in full. Your debt of sin has forever been paid By the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. If anyone ever tells you your debt is not paid, there's one more thing that you need to do. You tell them, it is finished. Jesus has paid my debt. And I don't have to prove it to you or to myself or anybody else. Because the Lamb has been slain. And He is seated at the right hand of the Father today, 
with the majesty on high, making intercession for me as the true high priest of God. It is finished. It is complete. Lastly, the resurrection attests to the fact that death, our final enemy, has forever been defeated. Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is what? Death. As a person who understands the resurrection, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Jews of that day understood that to be equal with God. The Son of God means you are God. And so when Jesus would say that, they would accuse Him of blasphemy and attempt to stone Him. But the resurrection proves He's the Son of God. It proves His Word is true. It proves that my sins are taken away. It proves that death has been defeated. The sum of all of that is that we can live our lives completely without fear. I can face this world, I can face my death, I can face the things that happen in my life without fear of men, fear of Satan, or even fear of hell, because Jesus paid the debt, and His resurrection proves it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for the resurrection of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't understand everything that happened. We don't understand how You laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. We don't understand this great mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. We don't understand how You could love us so much that You would come into the world and die for us. We don't understand how Jesus went from place to place, appearing in the midst of them other than through the power of God. But Lord, we certainly believe it. Dear God, we thank You for it. We thank You for this day of remembrance of it once again, as we observe 51 other times in a year, the first day of the week, when the disciples come together to remember the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. Let this be the one fact that strengthens us above all other facts, that He is risen, He is risen indeed. Forgive us, Lord, of our many sins and deliver us into Your watch care this day. We pray in Thy Son's holy name, Jesus. Amen.